We've begun working our way through John's Gospel, and so if you would turn with me there, John chapter 1. If you're using the, uh, the Red Pew Bible, that should be page 886, or at least very close to it. And what we learned from John last week is that Christianity is unique. Christianity is, is unique because when you look at world religion, ancient and modern, one common theme always comes up. God is at the top of the mountain, and we must do ABC to, to reach Him. Right? Or if you're, maybe if you're familiar with the East, right, with the religions of the Far East, if you're going to be one with God, you must meditate or do things in this certain way. So if we were going to use this metaphor, it's up to you to climb the mountain to get to God. But where Christianity is unique, what John 1 told us last week, is that actually in in Christianity, we don't climb the mountain. God actually comes down the mountain to us. That earth does not break into heaven. Rather, that heaven has broken through to earth. That's what the incarnation is all about. Verses 1 through 18 were all about Jesus being the one who reveals God, who narrates, who tells the story of God. And so now we look at verse 19. And we see the story continue. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Some of them had come from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan. That is different than the Bethany near Jerusalem that we'll see later in John's Gospel. That's in the south. This is in the north. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he existed before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, 
that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand? Help us to see Jesus and to believe on him and to have life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are uh, six days out. Six days. Four, I guess if you count a Thursday night, the Thursday night game, but who really counts Thursday night games? What we're waiting for is next Saturday and the beginning of the college football season, right? Or at least about 30 of us. Everybody else is kind of like, what happens in six days? Right? Because we've been talking about it all summer, the, you know, talk radio, who's the quarterback going to be, recruiting. All of these things happen year-round, but it's all the, the day that we've all been waiting for, or some of us have been waiting for, is next Saturday. Or maybe, maybe a better analogy, a better illustration would be this one. Right? Um, if you are, if, I can't believe he showed a picture of somebody getting a kiss in church, right? So that's a famous picture. If you're a student of history, uh, you would be able to tell me when this kiss took place, right? It happened in Times Square. It happened in the August of 1945. And it happened because World War II was over. Uh, the Japanese had surrendered. And so in celebration, this young sailor grabs that young lady and gives her a kiss, right? Overjoyed that six years of war that touched every single continent on the globe or just about every continent on the globe was finally done. The day that they had been waiting for was here. And that's, that's where we find ourselves in John's gospel. See, this guy John, he comes on the scene. But when he comes on the scene, before John comes on the scene, you need to know that for 300 plus years, no one has heard from God. God's people have been in exile. They have returned back to their land, but... God has never shown back up. Little ways here and there, prophets, stuff like that. But after Malachi, the radio goes silent. And for 300 years, between the Old and the New Testament, God's people long. And they wait. Rome controls Israel. And she is not very nice to Israel. And so God's people begin to wonder... Is God ever going to do anything, right? Because they have the prophets which tell them that one day this guy called the Messiah is going to come. And when he comes, he's going to judge the nations. He's going to judge the world and he's going to save his people. And that's what we're waiting on. 
But as year goes into year, goes into ten years, goes into a hundred, and generation passes away to generation, is God going to show up? Is something going to happen? Now, you need to know this too, that when John comes on the scene, there are lots of so-called messiahs, lots of rebellions, lots of uprisings. The Jewish people have tried to fight back against Rome. And every time, the question is, is this the one? Is he going to do it? Is he the one? Is he the one we've been waiting for? And every time, frustration and disappointment. And you know how that feels. When something that you've longed for keeps getting pushed off, eventually you just give up. Eventually you throw in the towel. And that's where we are. That's the verge of where we are when this guy, John, uh, the other gospel writers call him John the Baptist. This guy, John, shows up. And he's out in the desert. And he's, and he's really weird. Uh, he wears camel hair. And he eats bugs. And honey, and if that wasn't odd enough, he preaches this message of repentance and he baptizes people. And so the religious establishment in Jerusalem needs to check this out. John is actually a Levite. We learned that from Luke, which means he's part of a priestly family, but he's not doing priestly things. He's doing prophet things. And so that kicks in their minds this understanding that This is kind of a big deal. We need to check this guy out. And so, you see, they go out to the desert. I wanted to make sure I changed the slide. We still don't want people kissing behind me. They go out. Uh, They go out to the desert to figure out who this guy is. What is he doing? Who are you? And he answers them. He confessed a positive, right? He did not deny it, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. That word Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one, right? I'm not the one, I'm not the chosen one. I'm not the one that God will anoint to bring in the last day. That's not me. That's who you're looking for, but that's not me. I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, well, are you Elijah? Right, Malachi, the prophet Malachi said that before the day of the Lord came, that one like Elijah would come to get him ready. And John says he's not Elijah. Now Jesus later on will say that the ministry of John was like that of Elijah, but John, but John doesn't own that for himself. I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet? from Deuteronomy 18, where Moses said, don't listen to wizards, don't listen to sorcerers. Instead, listen to the prophet that will come after me, the great prophet who is greater than I am. And that prophet, in their minds, had come to be associated with the last days. So they were waiting on the prophet. And so they said, okay, well then you're not the Christ and you're not Elijah, so you must be the prophet. And he says, nope. You can imagine, they're a little frustrated now. And so they say, listen, we need to tell the boss who you are. So who are you? Who do you think you are? And he said, listen, if you want 
you want to know who I am, if you need to put a title on me, I am the voice. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And what John is doing is he's citing another prophet, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40. Here's what you need to know about Isaiah. Isaiah's book, the whole prophecy of Isaiah, if you read the front end, there's a lot of judgment in there. God's people have sinned, and so God is going to exile them from the land. And Isaiah talks about that hundreds of years before it actually happens. But if you make it through all of that to the end of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 66, we call it the book of hope. Because Isaiah gives good news after all of that. Let me read for you Isaiah 40 Verse 1, after all of the the judgment prophecy, Isaiah says this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If you want to get a picture of what Isaiah is talking about, you just need to take I-65 uh, to just north of Birmingham, where the interstate that they've been working on for all of my lifetime, uh, the interstate that goes to Memphis will finally join 65. The most expensive interstate juncture, I think, in history. Right? What you will see is what Isaiah is talking about. Valleys being raised up, hills being brought low, everything rough being made smooth. Why? Because you can't build a highway on unlevel ground. And what Isaiah is saying, the picture in Isaiah's mind is this. God's people, because of their sin, have been removed. They've been taken to the east, far from home. And the image that Isaiah gets, you have this voice crying in the wilderness, who's saying, level level the plain, level the mountains, raise the valleys up, make the curves straight. We're making a highway. We're making a king's highway. The king is coming. And the king is coming with his people. He's rescuing their people from their sins. And so we need a highway from the east, from the wilderness, back home. The king is coming with his people. And that's what John is picking up. John says, I'm the one. I'm that voice. I'm the one saying, make ready the highway for the Lord for God to rescue his people. I'm the voice. So he says the Messiah is coming, and he's coming to rescue, just like Isaiah said. Now, some of these guys were from the Pharisees. Uh, That's a name you may be familiar with. You're going to see him again. That word Pharisee means separated one. And these guys... These guys were serious about keeping the law of God in minute detail. Right? What they wanted to do was preserve God's law down to the, the smallest little bit. 
And in order to do that, they, they wanted to preserve it by actually making more of it, right? So what they would do in order to preserve the law in their day, they would take God's laws revealed in the Old Testament, and they came up with their own oral interpretation. And so they would come up with all of these principles that let you know that you were keeping the law of God. These guys would not even eat a piece of food that had not, had, that had not been tithed properly, they found out the proper price wasn't paid on it or tithed on it, then they wouldn't even eat that. That's how serious these guys were. And they were, uh, they were a small group, but they were serious none the same. And so some of them who are part of this delegation, they say, if you're not the Christ and you're not Elijah and you're not the prophet, then why are you baptizing? And the reason they ask that question is because they know Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36, another hopeful passage from a prophet, God says, I will sprinkle you with clean water and you will be clean. Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Pharisees see what John is doing and they, and they want to know, is the last day here? Are the last days here? Is this about to happen? And John, in a manner of saying, says yes. He's not the Messiah, but he's the voice getting ready for the Messiah. Alistair Begg uses this illustration. Um, If you you were to go back into the 1800s when the the steam trains first started being used in the UK, you would find what was called the 12-mile-an-hour act. And this was an act of parliament that mandated that trains could only go 12 miles an hour through a town. Now, the reason they would do that, of course, is so they didn't run over anybody. But in every town, you would have, you would have a forerunner. And the, job of this, and the job of this man was to run in front of the train. And, tell, and I want you to see the irony of that. This, this man's job was to tell people that a train was coming. All right? So here you have this little guy waving a flag. Now you can imagine that if you're on the other side of a hill, you can hear the choo-choo, choo You can hear maybe the whistle blowing, right? So you expect a train to come around the hill, and instead what you see is a little guy running on the tracks, waving a flag. I'm like, what are you doing? Get out of the way! Get out of the way! Like, you should probably be the one that gets out of the way, dude. There's a train behind you, right? But that's what the forerunner did. He ran in front of the train to let you know, in case you couldn't hear it, that the train was coming. That's John, right? And he's about to be overrun by someone much greater than him. John is the forerunner. He's the voice. So who comes next? It says this is the testimony of John, right? John is a witness. That's courtroom language. What does a witness do? He bears testimony in a court case. And our first witness on the stand is John. What is his witness? Verse 29, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him 
and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he existed before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John and Jesus are relatives. We learn that from Luke. Uh, Their mothers were related. And so it's likely that they probably knew each other somewhat. Uh, John is only six months older than Jesus. And so he's met Jesus, probably. But for the first time, he realizes that 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 boy Jesus he grew up with is somebody else altogether. Right? He's actually the one who has a different baptism than John. The one... Right, John says, among you stands one you do not know. He who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. In a, in a day when animals used the bathroom on the road and people wore sandals and not boots, you can imagine how nasty someone's feet were. And so it was the job of the lowest servant to take the, the sandals off, to undo the sandal strap, right, and to clean the feet. John says, somebody's about to get here. I'm not even worthy enough to do that. I don't even get to take his shoes off. That's how, that's how much greater he is than me. And then he sees him. Jesus. How does he know him? I was born before him. I entered ministry before him. But he outranks me because he existed before, before me. And John's baptism of water, Ezekiel 36, gives way to his baptism of the Spirit. He's the one, Ezekiel 36 also, he's the one who, he doesn't just pour out water on people, he actually will pour out the Holy Spirit on people. But even more than that, the way John knows that it's him, verse 32, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Now, in the Old Testament, when the Spirit was sent to somebody, it was sent for a very specific purpose, usually for a, for a set amount of time, and then it was withdrawn. Or in the case of like King Saul, he got the Spirit, but was not a godly king, and so God removed his Spirit. But what's astonishing about Jesus is he gets the Spirit, and it stays. And again, John is going to Isaiah in the book of comfort, the book of hope, Isaiah 42.1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, messiahed me, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. That's what John has in mind when he sees Jesus. When the Spirit descends on on Jesus and stays, it becomes clear to John that this is the man. This is the one. But probably the most shocking thing of all that John says 
the thing that doesn't surprise us. It doesn't shock us because we say it all the time. But if you were there you pro- and, were a, and were a religious, God-fearing Jew, you would have passed out. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the reason that is so shocking is because the Messiah wasn't supposed to be a sacrifice. Right? John says, you're looking for the Messiah. There he is. He's a lamb. And they'd be like, wait, what? No, no, no. The, no, the Messiah, he's a, he's a king. He's a conqueror. He's going to deliver us. No. No, he's, he's victorious, but he's the victorious lamb. That's not what they would have expected. And again, John is picking up Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, also a part of the book of hope, the book of comfort. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him uh, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter... And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. John says, Behold the Lamb of God. John is the voice, Jesus is the Lamb. The Messiah, the conquering King, is the suffering servant. That means that in, in Christianity, the way up is actually the way down. Or better yet, the way down is the way to go up. That not only, do, not only does God break into history, but He breaks into history as one who must die. And everyone who follows him must do the same. Everyone who follows him must take up the cross. So here he is, the Lamb of God. And what does he do? He takes away the sin of the Jews? No. He takes away the sins of the world. Jews, Americans, Iranians, Russians... The world, rich, poor, black, white, ugly, beautiful, he takes away the sins of the world. People who are addicted to power, people who are addicted to approval, people who are addicted to lust, people who are addicted to meth, he takes away the sins of the world. That's who the Lamb of God is. Jesus comes to take away the sin of the world. 
He comes to give the Spirit and to give new life. That's who Jesus is. So John's testimony is finished. His time on the witness stand is done. And he's told the whole truth and nothing but the truth, just like a witness is supposed to do. The question is, what do you do with John's testimony? What do you do with John's testimony? You listen to the voice. And you look for the Lamb. And you believe. Let's pray. Lord God, our sins are many. And yet you came to take them away. And the only way that they can be taken away from us is if they are laid on you. That our transgressions are laid on you. And by your stripes we are healed. O oh Lord, that we would believe that. That we would hear the voice crying out in the wilderness saying that the King is coming. He's coming to save. He's coming to rescue. And that when we hear the voice, we would see the Lamb. The victorious victim who dies so that we would have life. Who gives His life so that ours is not lost, but that we are forgiven. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you be the sum total of all our affections and joy. Would we long for you more than anything else. And would you set us free to follow. We pray it in Jesus' name.